welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James. Welcome to the latest podcast brought to you by the abuse team. I'm joined by my colleagues, Danny Vincent, Kathleen Hallisey, and Hannah Hodson. Hi, Danny. Hello. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Alan. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Danny. Hi, Hannah. Hi, everyone. So, this podcast is about the Sony Hill vicar who knew of her husband's sex abuse gets struck off. So, before we get underway with the podcast, I need to remind you that these podcasts do touch upon very sensitive issues. The content often revolves around matters that can be distressing. And if you feel that you are going to be upset by listening to this podcast, now's the time to turn off and go off and do something else. Otherwise, please stay with us. So assuming that you're going to stay with us, let's get on with the podcast. So as I said, by way of introduction, we're going to be talking about a Church of England vicar who failed to disclose to the Church of England a husband's sexual abuse of children. And she has, as a consequence, been barred from ministry. In other words, struck off. So before I hand over to the others, a little bit of further detail. So according to media reports, it emerged in October, so that's October last year, that the Reverend Helen Greenham had admitted to saying absolutely nothing, apparently, to her diocese about her husband, despite knowing of the abuse committed by him. And as a result, she was suspended pending the outcome of the church's disciplinary trial, or the tribunal rather. So the tribunal obviously found uh, against her and has decided to, I think the right word is to say punish or discipline by banning her permanently from ministry. So I'm particularly interested in this case because it touches upon the argument as to why there should be mandatory reporting. And mandatory reporting is all about those who are in some kind of position of authority reporting any allegations or concerns of child abuse to authorities. Because basically, here in this country, unlike, for example, many of the Australian states or France, there is no legal obligation if you become aware say, for example, in the church that abuse is taking place or might be taking place to report it. Anyway, so that's quite a heavy introduction. As I said, I'm very interested in mandatory reporting because mandatory reporting is very much on the agenda at the moment. ICSA, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, made a recommendation as regards mandatory reporting. And there are very powerful arguments as to why Parliament, the UK Parliament, should introduce a law that requires without ifs, buts or maybes, allegations of child abuse to be reported. Anyway, I shall pause there and I'm going to hand over now to Danny and Kathleen to tell us more about the story. Okay, so I will jump in there. Thank you, Alan, and say 
So this is in regards to Rev Helen Greenham, and it was her spouse, Peter Jenkins, who had committed sexual assaults. And this was between a really substantial long period. It was between 1984 and 2005. Jenkins was a former teacher, and there was a raft of sexual offences. And what came about from the investigation is that Helen Greenham was aware of, of some of these things, and she put people at risk, specifically children at risk, by letting him have further roles within the church, perform roles within the church that she therefore failed to manage the risk. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, Danny, that's really important to point out and also that the offences were not only over a long period of time, but were very serious and included rape. And while he didn't abuse any victims connected with the church, the fact of the matter is that she knew that her husband was a sexual abuser and he therefore was in a position where he could have gone on to abuse others. I think it's also important to point out that she acted as the director for Children and Families Ministry, which frankly I think makes it all the more concerning. And that church documents revealed that she, in addition to admitting that she was silent about it, she admitted that she had exposed others to risk of harm. So, you know, a really, really serious case here of, of you know, fortunately there were no other victims within the church, but there's certainly a significant possibility that that could have happened. Well, that highlights to me, doesn't it, that it's all very well for religious organizations to say, oh, we've got policies. Mm. Well, these policies don't add up to anything. You can have the most brilliant policy in the world. You can have various people appointed as safeguarding officers and whatever. Mm. But if it doesn't work, what's the point of it all? And that is why mm. I say there has to be a law that says, if you don't do your job in safeguarding children, if you don't report concerns about child abuse when it's come to your attention, there are going to be consequences. I don't see people punished as such. I want to see people doing what they're supposed to do properly, which is to safeguard children and and young people. So for me, it's all about changing the culture and the ethos instead of just paying paying lip service and turning blind eyes when it's convenient it's about you know changing the culture so that kids and young people vulnerable people don't get abused in the first place or it's nipped in the bud before others get harmed so maybe i'm being a bit blunt or a bit controversial here but for me this is what it's what it's all about you know it's Having safeguarding policies, great. Having safeguarding officers, great. But actually, it's got to be effective. I I think it kind of brings up two issues. Absolutely mandatory reporting. But I think it's something that religious institutions struggle with in terms of the whole kind of concept of people having sinned and being allowed redemption. So therefore, they shouldn't be prohibited from being part of a religious community. And I, and I understand that perspective, and that might not be mandatory reporting because, say, it's somebody who is a convicted pedophile who's been released and now starts attending a church. And I wonder whether how mandatory reporting captures that type of situation. And, well, we don't have any laws regarding mandatory reporting at, at this point in any event, but 
based on Ix's recommendations. I don't recall, but Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was anything about kind of these types of situations where somebody has committed the offense, has served time and has now been released, but is back out you know, in the community and say is, has joined a church. How is that risk managed? You know what I mean? And I think I agree with you. I think if if it's a situation where somebody within the church, particularly somebody who's in a leadership position, knows the fact that about this person being a convicted pedophile, then there has to be some mechanism in place where they, you know, are managing the risk internally, which is what they're doing now, but that there should be some type of also, I think, statutory involvement police, whoever, social services, somebody also involved in, in in managing that. Yeah, I think for me, it's not incompatible, you know. So mm. I've, I've been in the presence of those senior people in the Church of England who've gone and said, oh, we've got to forgive. Well, fine, if you want to go and forgive a sex offender, that's your affair. But that doesn't mean you've got to compromise your obligations towards people in your church or people on the periphery of your church, children, young people, vulnerable people, and so on. It's not a pick and mix situation. You know, if you want to forgive, fine, that's that's your affair. But you've got to be honest about it mm. and you've got to be open about it. You've got to be objective about it and not put at risk the vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously forgiveness is, you know, a difficult topic when it comes to to child sexual abuse, particularly mm. because there's a lot of religious organizations that really push that upon a victim. And I think that's completely inappropriate. And I think, you know, forgiveness, fine. You know, that's part of teachings of, of various religions, not just Christian religions, but it can't be forgiveness at the risk of having of further abuse no. of other people. Exactly. Um, so there has to be a kind of caveat to that forgiveness. Yeah, I, and I think so. And this is what I think it is where practically and intellectually mm-hmm. lots of people in the church, and I use the word church um, broadly, not so we're not just talking about the church of England, mm-hmm. where they have got to intellectually and practically get to grips with this because otherwise they're conflicted all the time. And if they if they're conflicted, then they can't do can't fulfill their safeguarding obligations. And you're mm-hmm. quite right. You in, in my humble opinion, it's wrong to pressurise survivors and victims. If a bishop in a church wants to go and forgive a sex offender, that's down to the bishop and, you know, his or her values and judgments and opinions and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. a bishop being a leader has obligations, not just to the church and maybe to this particular individual that he or she wants to forgive, but to the wider community and society and um, that should not be at the expense of putting children and young people at risk and that's why I think mandatory reporting is required to shift the culture Mm -hmm. and the ethos in these not just religious organisations but all organisations because until that ethos and culture is radically changed, I think these people and organizations are going to struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think too, where, you know, as you said, Alan, you know, you don't want to see people being punished, but I feel like we're, we're so far past the point of a kind of carrot versus stick situation where, you know, if we had mandatory reporting, we wouldn't have institutional (laughs) level abuse that we've seen in various settings, not just religious settings. And so, you know, I do think that we really do need a stick approach now where, you know, if you know of abuse, or even, you know, in this case, previous abuse, and you don't report it, you yourself face criminal liability. Yeah, exactly. And I'm hoping 
Well, there's, I think, a lot of evidence in support of this where mandatory reporting does make a difference. And mm. I think there's been a quite a number of studies in Australia now which show that when mandatory reporting is introduced, the number of reports actually increases significantly, which begs mm. the question, hang on a minute, if there hadn't been mandatory reporting, what would have happened to a large number of those cases where there were concerns that a child or you know young person was being sexually abused or at risk of being sexually abused? Presumably, yeah. it would have all gone on unnoticed or noticed but not reported. Yeah. Um, so the proofs in the eating of the pudding, mandatory reporting, you know, appears on the evidence to make a significant difference and maybe also points to the fact that it helps to shift the dynamic. It helps to change the ethos. And I think this is what we desperately need here in this country, because if it had been introduced when it should have been introduced a long time ago, then maybe lots of children and young people would have been spared the tragedy of being sexually abused. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think too, I mean, I'm sure, Alan, you could think of all the hundreds of cases that you've dealt with throughout your long career in this area, you know, where you've seen time and time again, where actually the institution or people within the institution, whichever, whatever institution that is, knew about abuse. And if there had been mandatory reporting and they had been required to report, it would mean that there weren't, you know, your client wouldn't have abused or various clients wouldn't have been abused. And I think those are the most tragic cases where, you know, you have a client and you just think you could have been saved. Exactly, you know, and I've seen what could only be described as well-meaning people in very responsible positions ignoring what is going on in front of them because it's all too distasteful and difficult and challenging and all the rest of it. Whereas if there had been mandatory reporting, I'm pretty sure, in respect of the cases that I'm thinking of, those individuals would have gone down a particular track and reported and the children in those cases would have been spared the ordeal, the misery and the pain and everything of being um, further abused. And this particular case highlights, it seems to me, someone making a positive decision when they're in a position of great responsibility not to do their job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's been kind of radio silence about mandatory reporting. And, you know, let's be frank about it. I'm sure there will be a lot of pressure as we saw in Australia, not to have mandatory reporting because, um, you know, you know, like in Australia, the Catholic Church, you know, were saying we don't want mandatory reporting and various senior people in the Catholic Church were sort of saying, I would rather go to prison than be mandated to report and it would break the seal of confession and, and so on. Again, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's mm. such a good point. I, I absolutely think that the Catholic Church is probably already strategizing behind the scenes of how they're going to fight this. I mean, not only did they fight mandatory reporting in Australia, they fought a change in the law regarding statute of limitations in New York, and that went on for over a decade. So, you know, there absolutely is going to be pushback by the Catholic Church, no doubt, and I think they'll fight tooth and nail. But, you know, I think it's important to point out that there is mandatory reporting in, in the states, despite them fighting it. And also there's no exception for the the confessional, so to speak. So not in every state, but in, in some states. And and I think that should be the case. Yeah, you know, I just I think there is it's weak thinking to come up with those sorts of arguments because as I said, it's putting it's putting the cart before the horse. No one is saying that 
religious beliefs need to be compromised in any particular way. That's down to the individual and the, the, the you know, the, the churches of the individual's um, concern. It's their affair. But when society says, well, actually, the welfare of children and young people is extremely and vulnerable people is extremely important. And if you are going to have the privilege, which it is, of having children and young people coming to your church, then there's a certain responsibility that goes with it. It doesn't work, you know, it's not a one directional transaction. If you want that, want those privileges, in my opinion, it is a privilege, you've got to take the responsibility that goes with it. If you don't want that responsibility, then don't have children and young people in your church. Absolutely. And also, I think, I mean, maybe a topic for another podcast, but I think there's also something that's going to need to be looked at in relation to mandatory reporting is religious groups and and others potentially, but certainly religious groups and without naming any particular names that say that they don't have any activities that involve children or they don't separate children from their parents. And so, you know, those situations are going to need to be captured too, where if there's any possibility that a child could be anywhere near that institution, then I think that they have to be covered by mandatory reporting. That's right. And I think if Parliament does get to grips with this, then it needs to appreciate that it has to be very black and white because if they try and hedge it in order to keep certain elements who are bringing pressure to bear happy, then they're going to find that they end up with a watered down requirement, which will probably cause more mischief than good. Definitely. That's a really good point. Right. Okay. So I'm going to bounce this out there. If someone in a position of responsibility does not abuse themselves, but they become aware that a child or a young person or a vulnerable person might be at risk of being sexually abused, turns a blind eye, doesn't report, makes that conscious decision not to report, and having not reported that child or young person ends up being abused, what should the punishment be of that person who failed to report? Very interesting question. Mm. So what's the answer, Danny? I really don't know the response, isn't it? Because you can see the difficulties that follow on from this type of abuse or sexual assault for individuals this happens to. This is sometimes a lifelong impact in all areas. We always talk about, you know, education, employment, relationships, future life, mental health. And this is just one example that's hit the press, which... I'm sure there are many, many, many others like this that haven't had a journalist report on. Should there be cases where that individual should be sent to prison? Almost like an accomplice. I think it depends on the facts of the case. I mean, this case we're talking about specifically today, it's clear that by not disclosing, she potentially put future victims at risk. But had it been that her husband had been abusing churchgoers, for example, whose parents perhaps left their children at, you know, Holy Communions after school clubs or whatever the church put on because of her role. And she was aware that although she wasn't the perpetrator of the abuse that her husband was, she was aware of this. In that scenario, my suggestion would be absolutely. What do you think, Hannah? I think I think this in this case as well, it, it goes further than just the church. Um, because I actually read in the BBC report that 
she'd been with her husband, who was who was obviously the perpetrator, since they were both at university together. And she was aware at the time that he had raped and got a young girl, I think she was 13 years old, pregnant. And she was aware of that at the time. So when you think of how much time's gone past and, you know, she knew that had happened, it just goes beyond risk to the church. It, it's, you know, how many other victims has he had in between? I think that in my opinion, I, I do think that does, does deserve some punishment because she's gone for all those years knowing that. The BBC have said they're doing further inquiries. They will be reporting back when, when the police have come back and done more inquiries. So who knows how many other victims there are. And in other criminal proceedings, you know, accomplices that perhaps don't do the wrongdoing still get prosecuted. If you think if yeah. there was some form of armed robbery or something and somebody's been involved in that but hasn't actually conducted the robbery they're still an accessory so as you say Hannah that the one thing here is that we know of the people that have come forward but like you rightly say you know this started when this gentleman was at university and with all types of cases like this normally there are so many people that disclose but there are many people in the background that perhaps haven't disclosed for their own reasons. So we may only be looking at the tip of the iceberg with this man. We don't know the answer, do we? So we better be prudent in what we say and and say and so on. But coming back to the question that I threw out there, that's clearly, the answer is clearly one that the politicians are going to have to grip to grips with. They're going to have to decide, okay, if we have a mandatory reporting law that says you must report, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences what will those consequences be? So in this particular case, the vicar can't effectively be a vicar anymore for life. She's sort of been banned from doing something which I suppose probably went to her very, very being. So, you know, potentially, if you think about it, her not just her livelihood, her vocation and her whole way of life may well have been taken away from her. I don't know. I'm just sort of theorising there. So, you know, the consequences could be extremely profound for individuals but should it go further and should they go to prison if they found to found to report and that's a a question that the politicians are going to have to answer there's obviously got to be some kind of sanction at the very very least otherwise it's just going to be a toothless piece of paper if there is a big if if there's a mandatory reporting law I think all the arguments are there for there to be a mandatory reporting law. And I think if there isn't one, it's going to be something of a cop out. But there we are. So I suspect we'll be coming back to this subject again very soon because the UK Parliament has got to report on the ICSA recommendations um, very shortly. I think within the next maybe month or two months, something like that. So it's sort of very, very soon. And it's got to address this question of mandatory reporting. I know lots of MPs are interested in it, but with how far they're prepared to go with it, I do not know. So watch this space. So that's the end of this podcast. So it remains for me to thank you for listening. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Kathleen. Please do join us with our next podcast. If you want to suggest subjects for future podcasts, please do get in touch with us. If you have any questions or comments, again, please do get in touch. So I hope you enjoyed. That's the right word. Enjoyed. I'm hesitating. Well, I hope you found it worthwhile listening to this latest podcast brought to you by the James 
team. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.